church. Good to be with you again for part two of our series on the church, looking at the missional nature of the church. And I'm thankful for Pastor Lee's words. Um, Psalm 122.6 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so we're called to pray for Israel. That's, that's the backdrop of our text for today, Acts 2. It's, it's in Israel. It's in Jerusalem. That's, that's where God's people were founded, um, where God built his church. And so we pray for that city and that nation because um, God moved there. And, and we are Christians because of what he did in that place. And so we give God thanks for that. And we pray for their peace. Um, but <clears throat> before we begin in Acts 2, I'd like to look ahead a little bit to Acts 17 just briefly. So I love this description of the church. So Paul had become a Christian at this point, and he's gone on mission. And in Acts 17, he's in a place called Thessalonica. So we have two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, and those are written to the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul is going with his brother Silas, his spiritual brother, not physical brother, but um, they're going on a, on, a, on a church planting journey together. And they get to this place, and people get word that they're there, and they're spreading the gospel. They're not happy about it. And so they're staying with a couple other people in their home, um, and they catch wind that these people are after them. So they sneak out, and they get away. But these people arrive at their friend's house, and they pull them out in front of the group. And referring to, to Paul and Silas, here's what they said about them in Acts 17, 6. These men who have turned the world upside down, saying there is another king, Jesus. I love that. I love that description of the church, these men who have turned the world upside down. Other translations say those who have caused trouble all over the world. I want that to be said of us, that we're a bunch of world changers, a bunch of troublemakers for Christ. And so we're going to look at that today. How do we become that? What do we do? In Acts 2, this is the beginning of the church. So how do we get up to this point? Okay, God creates this world. Our, our, our great and wonderful, powerful God breathes, speaks this world into existence, and he creates man and woman and breathes life into them. And he gives them this mandate to go and to bear fruit, to have babies and to spread um, these, these people all over the world. And so they do. But sin enters in before that happens. And from then, sin is now intertwined in everything that we do. And so a lot of bad things happen, and the people get really bad, so God starts over. He wipes the slate clean, he sends a flood, and he starts over through this man and his family, Noah. And through that, we get to this point where we get this man named Abraham, who God promises to build his nation, his people through. As numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand at the ocean, um, he's going to build his people. And he starts to do that. And fast forward a little bit, we get this guy named Moses, who, famous story, and, you know, we, we get all the plagues in Israel, and they go through the Red Sea, and they're wandering in the wilderness, and they go to Mount Sinai. God gives him his word, and he starts to build his people, and he promises that he's going to give them this land, and he does. Eventually, they get to this land that we were praying for today, the nation of Israel, and they start to build. They start to have babies, and they start to, to have jobs and, and create community and a society there. And God is, is, is speaking to them through his prophets, through these judges, through all these people. But they don't like it. They want kings. 
like all the other nations. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. And none of the kings live up to the expectation that they have. And they're all sinful. Now, there's some good ones, but majority of the time they're bad. And there's just this kind of flow, this cycle of God's people in their history where there's just trouble. And then there's a period of silence. They're waiting for this king, this true king, this good king. And then he comes as a baby, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And he enters the world, and he grows up, and he gathers these disciples. He's got 12 of them, a lot of others, but really 12 closely associated with him that we now call the apostles. And then Christ pours into them for three years. Then he dies this gruesome death on the cross for our sins. And in three days, he rises from the dead. And he spends a little bit more time with the people, but he says he's got to go. I've got to go to the Father, but I'm going to send a helper. Just wait. And so they do. They're waiting in this room. And God's spirit falls on them like tongues of fire on their head. They start speaking in languages that they don't even know. And other people are hearing the gospel. And Peter goes out and he gives this sermon, probably the best sermon ever preached because 3,000 people became Christians that day. And then they're like, what in the world are we going to do with 3,000 people? And so that's where we're at today. This is what they do with 3,000 people. The church is formed and they set systems. They set things in place, these structures, what I'm calling pillars of the church. You see, I want to highlight one thing. God's plan ever since the beginning that I just shared. God's plan for the spread of his kingdom and the rule of the king, Jesus, is the church. There is no plan B. The church is God's plan A. And what we're going to look at today in Acts 2 is not merely pragmatism for church growth. This isn't, this is how we grow Stephen Street. That's not what we're looking at. What we're looking at is spirit-formed ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church. This is how God wants us to be. It's simple. It's powerful and it's effective. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me, if you're able, in honor of God's holy word, Acts 2, verse 42. Hear the word of the Lord for us today, right here at Stephen Street. God's word to us. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world to die God, for our sins, to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. God, what a gift the gospel is, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming, for indwelling in our hearts, for building your church, for making us new, for leading us through your word. Christ, you were building your church. You promised it. And so we lay it all at your feet and say, build it. Lord, move through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all can be seated. Jesus began a movement, a movement that spread all over the world. And the church is still a movement today. There is an institutional nature 
to the, how we do church. The church is more of a living organism, more of a movement than it is an institution. And all of the great movements of God that we see throughout history begin with the personal movement of the Spirit in individuals' lives. It begins with a deep devotion to Christ, and this is expressed through a love for God and a love for people. In Acts 2.42, it says they were devoted. It actually says that twice. They were devoted. So what is devotion? This word is translated constantly in other places. It's often used with this idea of just persisting continually in something. We could say that these things that they were devoted to were the normative practices of the early church. They were the essential elements of what it meant to be the church. And I'm going to call these the pillars of a missional church. In strategic planning, pillars are these foundational elements that uphold a mission or vision. We saw Jesus' vision for mission last week. And I pray that you caught that vision. And now we'll look at how he wants us to accomplish that mission through his church. These eight pillars uphold the mission that Jesus gave us to make disciples. These are the things we should be devoted to as a church. The first one, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word apostle means one who is sent out. Okay, in the context of Scripture, it, it means one who's sent out by Jesus. There were 12 apostles, and they were all, they all experienced the life of Christ. They were with him in the flesh. They were sent out by him. Audibly, he, he called them to go and to take his message to others. In this context of this passage, it means the 12 apostles, those that were with him, taught by Christ for three years. The church was to be devoted to their teaching, both their interpretation of the Old Testament, because that's all they had at that time, and what they learned from Jesus, his, his oratory explanation of the Old Testament to them. That's, that's what they had, these, these teachings passed on from Jesus. They were going to teach the early church the how to interpret the Old Testament and the teachings of Christ. And then God would come to speak through them and, and continue his process of writing Scripture and we can still be devoted to this today because these apostles are people who, who were scribes and, and writing down what the apostles were saying. They've written down their writings, and we call that the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament was confirmed by Christ to be God's Word. And everything in the New Testament was confirmed by Christ to be God's Word through His apostles. Therefore, when we read this, what we're to be devoted to is God's Word. This, the Bible. I'm almost tempted to say that there's one foundation and seven pillars because the Bible refers to itself as the foundation of the church. The apostles' teaching is the foundation and Christ is the cornerstone holding it together. The gospel holds it all together and everything else is built upon these teachings of God's word. What would happen then if that's true, that the, the foundation is the apostles' teaching, is the word of God? If we build a, a physical house in this world, what happens if we were to build that without laying a concrete foundation? We just go build it in our backyard. And that thing wouldn't last that long. It wouldn't last ages. It would eventually fall. If the church's foundation is not the word of God, it will have no long-term missional value because the church will eventually crumble. I was a part of a story like that, a sad story of a church dying. In college, God moved tremendously in my life through this church. It was a church plan. I got swept up in it. It was so much fun just watching God move through people who were just, they had to evangelize or the church dies. And so they were. And it was, it was great to be around people who were just on mission all the time. Um, God, God used that church and the pastor and another man in my heart, in my personal walk with Christ tremendously. But as time went on, 
and I started to grow in my faith and I started to read the word and I started to listen to other men of God online as they would teach the word. I started to notice things in this church that just seemed off, that didn't align with what I was seeing in scripture. So I talked to the pastor, I'm like, you said this, but, but here's what this says, like help me understand. And, and over time, you know, through conversations with the pastor, I learned that he would eventually just reject the inerrancy of scripture. And so when you do that, then like there's no foundation. If you can't trust the Bible, you can't build upon the Bible. And, and they would let eventually this, this man come in who would influence the pastor. And this man who influenced the pastor, he rejected this big word called penal substitutionary atonement, um, which you, you see the word propitiation in scripture. He, he would reject that, call it cosmic child abuse. Um, and so, man, you're, 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 now you're, you're muddying the gospel. You have no foundation on the scripture and you're, you're muddying the heart of the gospel. And so, and over time, God, God provided me a way out, praise the Lord, and, and I went somewhere else and a healthy church. But, but later on in life, fast forward like many years, I'm, I'm catching up with an old friend who uh, went to that church early on in the early days. And I'm asking him about it. I'm like, hey, what, what do you know about that church? He said, oh, they, they don't exist anymore. I'm like, what in the world? What, what do you mean? What happened? And so he, he told me the story that during COVID they had to go and they had to do churches in houses. And this wolf in sheep's clothing, a false prophet came in and started to convince them that God's plan was not for the church, that his plan A for the world was not the church, that God, you know, Jesus wasn't moving through his church. He didn't even want us to build churches and that all the pastors of these churches, they just want money and power. And he started to convince these people and they started to leave and leaders eventually left to the point where they had no church left. Like it seems so silly and simple to us, but it happened, like it actually happened. And how in the world could that happen? Because their foundation was not the word of God. They didn't know the scriptures and now it's a dead church. It's lifeless, it's missionless. Each church is made of individual members. A chain only needs one wink link to break. Yes, the pastors need to be devoted to the word of God. They need to preach the whole counsel of God's word in season and out. But each member, all of us in here need to personally be devoted to the word too. We need to know the scriptures. Tony Evans said, you cannot grow beyond what you know. If you want to grow in the Christian life, you need to know your Bible. If you don't know how to study the Bible, then you need the fellowship of other Christians other Christian brothers and sisters to help you study the Bible. And that's what we see next. It says they were devoted to fellowship. This word can also literally be translated partnership. We could call it community. This is sharing life with other Christians, partnering together to follow Jesus. We don't follow Jesus alone. We follow Jesus together. And this partnership displays itself in really two ways that I see primarily. One is holiness and the other is mission. We stimulate one another to righteousness and obedience to Christ in the midst of fellowship. And we also encourage each other to share the gospel and to make disciples. We come alongside each other to do both of these things, to love God and to love people. I've been witnessing to these Mormon boys recently and I've had them over for a few times and you know, we've, we've maintained communication over text. And all three times, this guy named Solomon has come and he's come with someone else. Every single time it's someone different. Um, they never come alone. If they ever come knock on your door, they're never gonna be alone. They're always in groups of two. They do this intentionally. 
One is because uh, I asked them about it. They stimu it stimulates boldness. I mean, they're going up and they're knocking on a stranger's door. They don't know what's going to happen after that. But also, if one of them starts doubting because you convince them that the Book of Mormon is not true, then the other one, after they leave, they're encouraging. They're like, don't listen. Like, it is God's word. And they're encouraging each other to stand firm in their faith. And these groups are two. And it's a shame that they worship a false god because I admire their strategy. I admire a lot of things about them. They simply just borrowed it from Jesus, though. That's exactly what Jesus did when he sent people on mission. There's two stories in the scripture where Jesus sends out a group on this mini, like, short-term mission trip. And he always says, hey, go in groups of two. Never sends them out alone. He says, go in groups of two. Because I think Jesus knew the power of fellowship. He knew the power of fellowship. You need the church. And guess what? The church needs you. We cannot do life on our own. Church is not just a social club, a group of friends who all look, think, and talk the same. Church is a community of disciples following Jesus together. It can be messy, it can be difficult, but it is essential to our walk with Christ. A Christian who is disconnected from the local church is a disobedient Christian. Maybe that's you in here. And you need to recommit to being present in the body of Christ. But maybe you're consistent there. You're present, um, but you know people who are not. People who claim to be followers of Christ who are not connected to the local church. Encourage them. Reach out to them. They need the church or Satan will devour them in their isolation. He will. Love demands us to care for each other in this way. It might be awkward. Say, hey, where have you been? I haven't seen you in like a month. It might be awkward, but love demands us care for one another. But fellowship is more than Sunday gatherings. It's life on life throughout the week, but it's not less. We gather together on the Lord's day. So when we gather, what are the ways the Lord wants us to worship him? Continuing to verse 42, it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, we don't typically just pass around a loaf every single Sunday in here and just eat as Pastor Scott teaches. That'd be kind of nice, though. But we don't do that, right? So what is, what is he talking about here? This is likely talking about what the early church writers called an agape meal or, or a love feast, typically ending with the Lord's Supper. So the early church prioritized eating together. We could do a whole sermon on the theology of eating, and I'm actually going to speak about that a little bit later in this sermon. But food and eating together has been a central part of our faith all the way back to, to the beginning. One of the primary examples of food being central is Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. And that's likely what's in view here. The Lord's Supper was the primary emphasis on the gathered worship in the early church. It was a distinguishing mark from other religions, especially Judaism. So in Jewish culture, they would go to temple, and they would have someone teach them, and they would sit, and they would listen. Okay, that's not unique to the church. Other religions do that. What was unique to the church is that when they would gather, they would do this thing called the Lord's Supper. They would pass this bread around, break it, say, I'm eating this in memory of the body of Christ, and they'd pass this cup around, and they'd drink it in memory of the blood of Christ. They were ridiculed for this. The world was making fun of them, saying they were a part of this cannibalistic cult at this love feast, eating flesh and drinking blood. Like, it sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? They were ridiculed for it, but it didn't stop them because they knew it was essential to their faith and to their worship because Christ instituted it. It really wasn't until Zwingli in the 1500s during the Protestant Reformation, he was one of the few around Luther that um, God used tremendously to reform the church. 
It wasn't until really Zwingli that the pulpit began to take priority over the table. Now, preaching is essential. It is important. And preaching is like the rudder of a ship. It's a tiny thing, but, man, where, it, where the preaching goes, typically the church goes. It's, it's very vital. But the early church was, was really devoted to the Lord's Supper. From the few early church sources we have, church gatherings would start with everybody together for a time of reading God's Word, uh, followed by some explanation and exhortation from an elder. And they would then have a time of prayer together, an intimate time of prayer together. And then they would eat. And once those things were done, they would kick out non-believers and those who had not been baptized, except for probably children of, of Christians. And, and the remaining believers would then take the Lord's Supper together. Now, I'm not saying we go that far, and I'm not advocating that, that every time we do the Lord's Supper, we're like, you're not a Christian, peace out. You need to leave right now. <laughs> no, we're not saying that. I'm not advocating that. But I do think that it shows how far we've fallen from our view of the table. When we have the table out, and the deacons come and they, they start to pass out the elements. Do you approach that moment with reverence? Or is it just something that we do? You know, they approached it with reverence. Look how Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ. Like this is strong language. This is very significant. He's saying that there's something extremely special about that moment. It's holy. And in 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to flip there to me with me real quick, this is, this is the famous passage that we always read at the Lord's Supper. Verse 23 through 33. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Like that is strong. Verse 28, let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is the craziest verse. Verse 30, this is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. He ain't talking about them passing bread around and then they fall asleep during worship. He's saying that people were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and they were dying. Man, that is intense. Many faithful Christians and pastors since the church began have disagreed on what's happening exactly during that time. They disagree on how often we should do the Lord's Supper. Now, Lord's Supper debates have been going on for a while and that's not what we're going to do here. The main point that I want to convey is to not come to the table lightly. When you participate, participate with all of you. Preaching is great. It's important, but it's only a sermon that enters the ears. It's been said in some studies that we only retain 20% of what we hear, but 90% of what we experience. The Lord's Supper is a sermon that is experienced through all of your senses. And every time, it is a sermon that emphasizes the gospel. That's what it is. So when you hold that bread and rub it between your fingers, think about the flesh of Jesus as you crunch it between your teeth and it, it breaks into pieces. Think about his body being broken 
and bruised for you. As that bread dries your mouth out, think about Jesus on the cross, crying out for a drink because his mouth was dry. As you stare into that cup and you see that red, deep color, think about that blood that was shed for you. And think about what Christ did for you. Participate with your whole self. It was meant to engage all your senses in worship. But not only do we worship outwardly with physical things, we worship inwardly in the spirit. It says they were devoted to prayer. As I stated in the beginning, this movement was spirit-led, and the spirit moves where there are praying people. Prayer is the center point of life with God. It's essential to our personal spiritual health, but also essential for our community's health. If the Bible was the early church's food, prayer was their oxygen. They could not live without it. Everything they did was saturated in prayer. Every great revival from this point on had prayer as a central element. When you look at the greatest men of God throughout history and you read their biographies, almost every single one of them had a passionate prayer life. And the greatest example we have of a passionate, deeply devoted prayer life was that of Jesus. On multiple occasions, it said he spent all night in prayer. That was typically before a major decision. I've never done that. He would often withdraw from the crowds or arise really early in the morning where there's stillness and quiet, and he would pray. If it was essential for the Son of God, how essential do you think it is for us to be devoted to prayer? If we had a prayer gathering as a church on Sunday, right before service, how many people do you think would show up? And prayer shows our dependence on God. And we as Americans, we, we depend on ourselves. We're comfortable people. We have everything we need. So why would we rely on God? In the last church I worked at, we had about 600 people who would gather uh, to worship on Sunday mornings. We had one service. And so before first, actually we, we had a life group and then we'd have a service. And so before life group, we had a, about an hour time to be devoted to prayer with each other. Anybody was invited. It was mentioned in the bulletin, mentioned from the pulpit, like everybody knew about it. And we did it for years. I was at that church for three years, and those last two years they, they were doing this. That's a long time. About every single Sunday, just about 30 people for two years. That's 5% of the church. And we wonder why God was not moving in our midst. Prayer is our opportunity to interact with the Creator God and to participate in His work of bringing redemption to earth. Wayne Grudem in his book Doctrine said, if we were really convinced that God actually does respond to our prayers and change the way he acts, and therefore that God actually does bring about remarkable changes in response to prayer as scripture repeatedly teaches, then we would pray much more than we do. If we pray little, it is probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. So do you want to see God move in your life, in the lives of those people around you? Then you must pray. We must pray. It will not happen any other way. Prayer is the means that God has chosen to accomplish His will through His people. When we pray, God moves. And God was moving. Look at verse 43. I flip back there. Verse 43, it says, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. This was confirmation that God's blessing was on them. And if we uphold these pillars, I believe we will continue to see the power of God displayed. But we must be unified in our pursuit of Jesus. Verse 44, he says, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. 
This was before denominations and divides. At this time, for hundreds of years and following, it, it was just the church. You just belonged to the church. It wasn't Baptist or Lutheran or Catholic. There weren't, you know, fancy names and logos and color schemes. And nothing's wrong with those things. It was, it was just simple. And it was just simple church. It was, it was just people who followed the way of Jesus together. There was a unity there. And this verse is primarily about how their unity was displayed through generosity, which I'll speak to next. But I think it also includes doctrinal unity in the essentials, but even more importantly, relational unity in love. And this is ultimately just a reflection of the Trinity. In John 17, Jesus prayed for us, and he prayed for our unity. Listen to him. It's not on screen. You can just listen. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me because they are yours. He's praying for the church, for us. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. And then verse 20, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Man, I don't know how many times he said it, but he prayed that we would be one a lot. And look at that last one, verse 23, that our unity would be evangelistic. He says that the world may know you've sent me. Through what? Through our unity. Unity is one of the most talked about topics in the New Testament, but it's often neglected in our churches today. I know of multiple church divisions. I know of pastors who view other pastors and other churches in their community as competition. No, it's, it's a terrible thing. We almost compete with each other. Like, like we're tribal people. We like to divide ourselves on like second and third level issues. We, we compete with, with who has the better theology or, or who's doing more for God. But church is not a competition. It's a collaboration to obey the Great Commission. We are building a kingdom, not a castle. We're building the kingdom of God, not the castle of Stephen Street. And that's one of the reasons I love this church. And I love our pastors. It's because they pray for other churches in town. They pray for other pastors in town. And they love each other, truly. They don't see other churches in this city as competition. They see them as partners. Because we're about the kingdom. And that's what it's all about. We need to be unified and when we are unified, we naturally care for each other's needs. Verse 45, it says, They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Many people throughout history have tried to make this text say that the early church practiced socialism, but that's, that's not the case. That's the furthest from the truth. Nobody was forcing anybody to do anything. This was all done out of an overflow of love for their brothers and sisters. This is kingdom economics on display. It's not of this world. And in a few chapters, in chapter 4 of Acts, we even see this on a more full display. It says in 32, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. See the unity. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them. Listen to this. For there was not a needy person among them. And they were selling their properties, they were selling things, they were using their money, and they were helping the local body of Christ, and not a needy person was among them. And I've experienced that type of generosity here. 
firsthand at this church. Last year, I got laid off from my job, and at the time, I was the primary breadwinner, and we had a baby about to be due. Like, it was extremely stressful. I'm in my 20s, and I got shingles. Like, it was intense. It was challenging. But this church stepped in, and they provided for our needs. They gave us cash. They gave us jobs. I see you gave me a job cleaning out water towers. Like, church gave me jobs temporarily as I'm looking for things. And we get gift cards in the mail for places to eat. Man, that is the church living out kingdom economics. We're working towards the process of our adoption, and adoption's not cheap, but I have zero stress already because I've experienced generosity through this church. But there's other people who have gone before us and have adopted, and they've never lacked a need. This church and other saints have come alongside them and have provided for them. That is kingdom economics on display. As Christians, we cultivate a very different set of practices regarding the use of our finances and our positions of influence. We understand that we, what we have is not primarily for our comfort as an individual, but it's to be used for the expansion of the kingdom and the care of the body of Christ. We are part of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. And the kingdom of God has a very different economy than the governments of this world. Radical generosity based on the needs of others is the primary economic practice of Christian community. But we're not only generous with our money. We're called to be generous with our time. Look at verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. We're to be devoted to hospitality. The early church shared life with each other and with unbelievers. And the primary avenue they did this was around a table with food. And all the Baptists in here said, amen, that's right, we love food. Isn't that so cool? And as I said earlier, eating together is central to our faith. Think about the two most significant events in our faith history, the Passover and the crucifixion. How was the Passover celebrated? Through a meal. And how are we commanded to celebrate the crucifixion? Through a meal, the Lord's Supper. There are so many other things that could be said about a theology of eating, but the central point here is that the early church did not eat alone. They did not eat alone. The history of the church is around a table. For hundreds of years, this is where the people of Jesus met for the church. It wasn't in the sanctuary and steeple. They didn't have those things. There's nothing wrong with them, but they didn't have them. They met around a table in homes. And that's likely how the gospel spread so rapidly. It would move from one table to another. It was so easy to invite people in to that. The table is a very ordinary place. It's so routine, and every day it is easily overlooked as a place for life-changing community. But sharing a meal with someone can be just that, life-changing. There's a story of this lady, this saint, Rosaria Butterfield. Um, she wrote a couple books. One's called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and another called, is a book about hospitality, and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I love that title. But in her book, Secret, Lights of an Unlikely Con Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she just shares her testimony. She was a just radical, women's right, feminist, um, LGBT, you know, she, she lived with a partner of the same sex. She was a, a, a professor of women's studies at a liberal university. Like, all of that, that was her. And she said that was her identity. That was what she built her life around. But a local church pastor at this Presbyterian church in her town invited her over for dinner. And he didn't even share the gospel with her the first few meetings. He just kept inviting her over for dinner and just loving on her. 
And over time, they started to have spiritual conversations. And over time, she recognized that, and these Christians, they, they have something really special. And over time, she came to faith in Christ. And now she's married to a pastor and, and is one of, one of the, our greatest advocates and resources on how to minister to the LGBTQ community through the ordinary means of hospitality. And God changed her life through a meal. And many of you have tons of plates. You have tons of, of cups in your cabinet. You have tons of chairs around a really big table. You have a fridge full of food and a freezer full of probably half a cow. Who knows? But yet, you eat alone day in and day out. I want to challenge you. Start inviting someone in your life group over for dinner. And then make that a regular habit in your life. Once that becomes a habit, begin inviting unbelievers over for dinner. Maybe people in your neighborhood or people from your work or people in a place you play like the gym or something like that. Once that becomes a habit and you'll see God move. And if we want to see a movement of God in Cookville, I honestly don't think it's going to happen in a church building. I believe it's going to happen around a dinner table. Your dinner table. Why do I think that? Because that's what the early church did. And God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Look at verse 47 again. It says, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Every single day. How remarkable is that? And I would love to see someone come to faith every single day. But notice who's accomplishing this. Look at verse 47 again. Who's accomplishing this? God. It says the Lord is adding to their number. And that should bring you relief. Jesus promised. He said, I will build my church. That means that if we're simply obedient to share, Christ will save. It's not up to you to save people. But it is up to you to share and to open your life to others. You don't have to have the perfect presentation skills. All you need to do is invite people in to your life. Share life with them. Eat dinner with them. Ask them questions about their life. And as the time comes, share Christ with them. Talk about your Savior that you love so much. Talk about the joys of the Christian life. Talk about the struggles of the Christian life. Talk about your sin and the pain you've experienced in life and how God has changed you and used situations in your life to grow you. Talk about your life and bring Christ in. I want you to think about evangelism as a conversation, not a presentation. You don't need a PowerPoint slide deck to share the gospel. You don't need the perfect points memorized. You do need to be able to articulate the gospel. And there's some helpful tools out there that help you do that. But the power is not in the tools. The power is in your ability to open your life to people, love them where they are, and point them to Jesus the greatest thing they could ever have. Point them to the treasure. And to illustrate this, I think we could look back in church history to the 6th century. In contrast, the Celtic church's model of evangelism, what they were doing on Ireland with the Roman Catholic church at that time in Rome. Now, this is the method of St. Patrick. And we talk about St. Patrick's Day, and we don't really know much about St. Patrick. But he was a man of God, and God used him to start a revival in Ireland. And we're likely Christians today because of what God did there. So what did they do? Let's look at Rome first. Rome's model for reaching people in that time, which was primarily a civilized people, they were good Catholic conservative folk, okay? They would gather people, they would have someone present a message, they would invite them to decide to believe in Christ, and then if they decided yes, 
they would then invite them into the fellowship of the church. Seems very logical, right? Because this is how many of us have experienced church. This is the way of Billy Graham. Like this is literally the 1900s of church history. We would gather a crowd and we would have a gifted man talk to him and then he'd get decisions and then we would assimilate them into the church. Presentation, decision, assimilation. But the Celtic model was far more successful in the evangelization of the lost. So much so that the Celtic Christians started to leave Ireland and go to Rome on mission. And I think their model is what we need today because long gone are the days of Billy Graham. We don't live in a Christian nation. The population isn't primarily conservative. In essence, America is more like the 6th century uncivilized barbarians of Ireland than the civilized conservative Catholic folk of Rome. We just got good technology and clean drinking water. And we live in a postmodern society where people believe there is no truth, where morality is relative, where baby murder is rampant. The God of America is self, just like it was the barbarians in Ireland. But the good news is that the gospel hasn't changed and it's still powerful to save. But our strategies for getting the gospel out, they oftentimes do need to change. We marry the mission, but we date the methods, okay? We're married to the gospel. We have the gospel. We share the gospel. The gospel doesn't change, but, but sometimes our methods of getting this gospel out there do. Here's how the Celtic Christians evangelized Ireland. They established community with people that God placed them around, their neighbors, and they invited them into their lives, into fellowship. They would invite them in and show them what it looked like to be a Christian. And within that fellowship, they started to engage them personally in spiritual conversations, ministry, in prayer. They lived the Christian life in front of the lost, showing them an alternative to the way they were living. And in time, as they formed these relationships, as they started to share more often, these people would slowly come to faith. And then these Celtic Christians would call them, okay, you believe this. Now you've got to put behind everything that you know. And you've got to leave behind this wicked life you're living. And they would call them to take up their cross and follow. The Celtic model reflected the adage that for most people, Christianity is more caught than taught. It was less about an event and more about a relationship with someone. And there are modern studies that show this being an effective way to reach people. An empirical study was done by the United Bible Societies in Great Britain. The results showed that the majority of 600 or so people that they interviewed had a similar progression of faith to the way these Celtic Christians evangelized. It began first with a lost person becoming friends with a Christian. Then they encountered the gospel through a community of faith and over time, gradually, they would believe. A few points of application based on this. Your faith needs to be contagious. Is your walk with Christ a compelling alternative to the way the world lives? If someone looked at you, would they say, man, there's something special about how they live. It should be like that. Christians should be the most joy-filled, purpose-driven people in this world. Our lives should point to something so much greater than what the world has to offer. And if it's contagious... That means others will catch it. And in order for that to happen, you need to be close to non-Christians. If you want your contagious faith to cling to them just like a disease, then you got to be around them. you got to touch them. Right, you've got to extend your hand and love them. You need friends, people you love who disagree with you. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Not because he tolerated and accepted their sin. 
He called many people to repentance. Jesus said many difficult things and many people have walked away from him. Religious people and unreligious people alike. Yet, he kept saying the sinners, kept inviting him over for dinner. Why? Because he genuinely loved them and he was offering an alternative that was far greater than what they were chasing. They were not satisfied. So do you love the lost? And are you willing to have difficult conversations with them? Lastly, I just, I just go back to hospitality. Invite people into your home. A non-believer is unlikely to come to church when you invite them unless it's Easter or Christmas. That's, that's just the nature of, of the world we live in now. And they're just going to say no. Like, I don't want to go to church. That's reality. But you know what they're likely to say yes to? Is if you put a uh, pot roast in the, you know, the crock pot with some potatoes and some carrots and some food. And then you say, hey, I've got some really good food over. I know you've got kids. And uh, just come on over. Come eat dinner with us. You don't have to clean up. And you get to go home and your house will be just like you left it. They're going to say yes to that. And if you want to invite me over for dinner tonight, I will say yes as well. And they were hospitable. And we need to be hospitable. Be evangelistically hospitable. And watch Cookville be reached for Christ. We've just explored these eight pillars of a missional church. Devotion to scripture, to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, to prayer, to unity, to generosity, to hospitality, and to evangelism. How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? Maybe you're not a Christian and you recognize that the things you're chasing are, they're just not satisfying you. I want to urge you and turn from your sin and come to Christ. Your sins will be forgiven. Your desires will be changed and you will be made new. It's good. You want it, I promise you. Maybe you're a new Christian in here and this seems overwhelming to you. You're like, dang, Jesse, you just threw like eight things at me. I don't know what to do about that. And babies need to learn to walk before they can run. If you're a new Christian, maybe your first step, here's what I want your first step to be. Join a life group. Be devoted to fellowship. Let that be your first step. After service, come find Tommy in the back. He'd be delighted to help you get plugged into a life group. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you feel like your walk with Christ is just not as vibrant as it was. Which of these areas, these pillars, need more attention in your life? Start there. Start there and focus on one and just see what God will do. Steve Addison, a guy wrote a book called Making of Movements, has this quote I really like. He says, the great movements of the Christian faith are only unleashed through the presence and power of God in the midst of his people who are faithful to his word, led by his spirit, and engaged in his mission. I want to experience a great movement of God here in Cookville. I don't know about you. But let's be this kind of church, the church that upholds these eight pillars. Let's pursue them together. Let's follow Jesus together and watch Cookville be transformed all